Hi everyone, welcome to the Planet Podcast, where two themes that we often discuss are climate action and the need to preserve biodiversity and ecosystems. And generally speaking, if you take climate action, that is usually also good for uh, the biodiversity and the environment and vice versa. If you preserve ecosystem, uh, that normally means that you preserve trees and the soil and water systems that all play important roles for regulating the climate. But sometimes climate action is shaped in such a way that it actually harms the environment. And sometimes those parties that lobby for policies that are labeled as climate action actually have different goals in mind. And that is where NGOs come in to be that independent guardian of our future that, that follows policymaking and the different powers at work and the lobbyists and the business interest. And the NGOs keep an eye on the bigger picture that includes many aspects of our well-being and on, on the rights of indigenous people. And NGOs can speak up for nature and animals because nature and animals can't speak up for themselves. And our leaders often forget that we can't live without them. So I'm honored today to be joined by Niels Hermann Ranum. He works for Rainforest Foundation Norway, where he's the acting head of policy drivers of deforestation, comms and marketing. And yeah, so with that, welcome to the podcast, Niels. Thank you very much. <laughs> so Pleasure. for uh, great you could join us so for the listeners that don't know rainforest foundation norway could you could you tell us about your work and and the current focus yeah i could do that um rainforest foundation norway as the name indicates we're a norway-based organization but working internationally with rainforest protection and to strengthen the rights of indigenous peoples and forest-dependent communities living in tropical rainforest areas. So we have a double goal uh, of both protecting the environment, but also supporting the people that live in these environments uh, and are completely dependent for forests for their survival. We do this by working uh, in all you have kind of three major rainforest regions in the world. You have the Amazon, you have the Congo Basin, and you have Southeast Asia and the Pacific, Papua New Guinea. So we work in all these three regions together with local partners, civil society organizations, indigenous peoples organizations, human rights-based organizations, etc., to basically <laughs> work towards local and national level decision makers and also globally uh, to try to do our best to contribute to forest protection and uh, supporting the people living in these forests. Yeah, and That's that is very brief. First. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that is highly necessary because uh, the rainforest is not doing well uh, all over the world, I believe. And, and, and so are the people and the animals as well living uh living in the rainforest and uh what i i read some different accounts over the years whereas the rainforest in the world are still a carbon sink as they used to be that they capture more uh, carbon than they produce and over over the past five or eight years i've seen different reports that we've now passed the kind of tipping point that in those three major uh, tropical rainforest zones in the world that they are now actually uh, becoming an emitter of carbon. Is that what? What, what is your your position there? Have have we passed this tipping point? 
Mm. I think in some of the areas, especially in the Amazon, uh, that uh, seems to be the case. And I think it's important to note that how uh, the deforestation rate and the destruction varies over time, and it varies with commercial interests, it varies with political interests, and especially in the Amazon and especially in Brazil, it has really, really been hard times uh, the last few years where you had a combination uh, of commercially driven deforestation that is in a way enforced by a government that is weakening uh, environmental regulation and weakening uh, the rights of uh, forest dependent communities like indigenous peoples, etc. And the result of that is that you see a steep increase in deforestation rates in Brazil. Uh, and you come, you're getting kind of closer and closer to the really serious tipping point where the rainforest as an ecosystem is not necessarily, um, which is able to maintain the rainfall patterns. So it will kind of gradually dry out and turn into more savanna-like areas than rainforest areas. That will be a very, very dangerous uh, point, and that's a thing that we really, really are working hard to avoid, uh, and which is a good uh, kind of, it's very good that you bring this uh, topic up uh, for discussion. Um, so uh, it, it is uh, urgent. Uh, we believe that we still have a few years, but it, we really need to make sure that all kind of decision makers that are directly or indirectly uh, contributing to deforestation, that they change uh, their behavior. So yeah. that's hopefully what this podcast also can contribute to. Yeah, and it's 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 a theme that often comes up for the, the regular listeners to this podcast, a theme that often plays a role in, in the many podcasts I made this year. I, I haven't counted them, but it must be somewhere between 60 and 80, I guess, I made this year. And one theme that often comes back is the over, the enormous importance of, of governance, because you need good governance for preserving rainforest and 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 for all environmental policies and and not too far away from from staying in latin america you have a country like uh, costa rica that has has made tremendous gains in in replanting uh, the forest in in the deforested areas that they had so which which is an example of positive governance unfortunately their land service is a fraction of what we're talking about in uh, in the amazon of course yeah, but I can add, because you also have, luckily, bigger countries that are, in a way, uh, performing better. Brazil once was, uh, in a way, the pioneer, in because Brazil yeah. had alarmingly high rates of deforestation just after uh, year 2000. But kind of a combination uh, of improved governance, uh, political will, and also private sector action mm, resulted in dramatically reduced deforestation rates in Brazil. With the current government, that has changed again. But what we have seen now the last three to five years is that a country like Indonesia, uh, which um, 
is the biggest kind of rainforest country in Southeast Asia. They have actually succeeded in uh, reducing deforestation rates uh, significantly as well. So Brazil has uh, become darker in a way, but luckily you have other good examples where you see that actions taken by decision makers actually have a result, a positive result, um, which we need to maintain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's it's something you see all the time. I think it, it, the change in Brazil also went together with a picture. I remember when once the Lula government went and, and Bolsonaro started, I saw the pictures of the two governments, of the teams of ministers, and I think the previous government that was like half it were women and. Uh, and and the new team is just all gray old men. I'm saying this looking at the color of your hair and the changing color of my hair, as you can see on the Zoom call. So we are two gray old men here yeah. <laughs> talking to each other. <laughs> Not that old, yeah. Okay. But, um, yeah, so where, where I also want to go to was um, the the biofuel policy and, and, and the EU, because I know that's something that, that you're focusing on uh, at the moment. Could you Could you say... What's going on? And, and keeping in mind the intro that I said when not all uh, policies that are presented as climate policies are always um, good for all aspects of nature. Hmm. And I think the biofuel is probably one of the perfect examples or the, the bad examples of how environmental policies can go wrong. Um, mm, we all agree that we need to phase out the use of fossil fuels, uh, for ex especially for transports. Uh, so the use uh, of well, coal, oil, gas uh, on fossil resources, that's something we basically have to stop. And, and one of the ideas that came up uh, well, some decades ago was, why don't we make fuels or the biomass, biofuels, uh, where you can use vegetable oil, turn that into uh, diesel or gasoline, uh, yeah, and, and replace fossil fuel. The problem is uh, that we have realized or increasingly are realizing now is that the demand uh, for some of the feedstock that are used for biofuels and in particular palm oil and soy the increased demand for those uh, because of the biofuel industry results in increased deforestation, which, and what's happening then when you're chopping down trees, is that you release greenhouse gases. So the purpose was to reduce emissions, but what we actually see is that some of the biofuels that are very popular uh, and well, very common in use, they actually have even higher uh, greenhouse gas emission than fossil fuels. So it's a typical example of a, I would assume, well-intended policy where you end up with a result that is even worse than your starting point. Yeah, and the EU worse uh, in, unfortunately in... has a important part of the blame for that. Yeah, so it's it's it's, uh, it's worse in emissions, <clears throat> which was finally the which was the starting point to work on. And on top of that, it also destroys uh, the environment. So it's it's uh, it's a double whammy in a way. Yeah, it's a triple uh, triple bad thing. <laughs> it's worse for the climate. It's worse for biodiversity. 
and it harms uh, local communities that are living in these forests. Uh, so it's it's really really a bad idea and an idea that we have to get away from. We're not yeah. there yet, but we're making some small steps. Yeah. So how did the policymakers come to that idea? Who who was lobbying them to do it? Was it environmental activists or was it uh, were there business interests involved? It's uh, it's a combination. I think environmental activists as well need to take a part uh, of the blame of that because we, environmentalists didn't kind of realize the consequences of this policy. But of course, everybody producing and selling uh, feedstock that is used for biofuels have an economic interest in doing that. Yeah. And policymakers, EU decision makers, they felt a need to do something in acclimation mark uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emission and biofuels seem to be a kind of easy option uh, to reduce uh, emissions but what we have seen uh, and especially the last few years is kind of increasing evidence on how the eu biofuel policy is driving deforestation uh, and you have gradually uh, had some changes in the EU policies, but it's still to the extent that the EU uh, currently has a policy to continue using palm oil as biofuel feedstock until 2030. And there's no limitations on the use of soy. Uh, so there's no kind of phase out deadline uh, for the use of soy for biofuel despite that we know that these have the negative climate effect and increases deforestation. So that's wow. a key thing that we are working on together with our allies and partners uh, in Europe and globally actually as well, is to make sure that the EU as soon as possible decides on a phase out, especially on palm oil and soy-based biofuel but also on kind of crop-based biofuels in general, which has a kind of very, very uh, limited, if any, uh, effect on climate. Yeah, because it's, it reminds me of far away from the tropical forest uh, of the situation in America, where the, 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 the U.S. government was actively promoting uh, biofuels and, and growing of wheat or whatever material they use for it. I'm not really sure if you use wheat for it. Wheat, wheat or soy, mice. Yeah, and, um, uh, and, and that has, complete, has, has been bad for the environment, but has also completely disrupted the market. It's, it's a bit some time ago that I read about it, but I, I remember this was typically a policy that started uh, well-intended and also went completely wrong. Mm. Yeah, uh, you've seen this policy, uh, especially in the Western world uh, so far, but where it's kind of increasingly being becoming popular also in other markets. So we see now Indonesia is promoting palm oil based biofuel. Brazil has been promoting uh, sugarcane and soy based biofuels. The aviation industry is struggling with their reputation. Uh, they deserve to struggle with their reputation because they have uh, high emissions. And one of the things that they are uh, working with in the aviation industry is to increase the use of biofuels. And if you 
doing this by choosing uh, the most popular feedstock, you will contribute to do more harm and not uh, do anything to solve the problem. So there are changes that are needed, not only in the EU, but in various other uh, country uh, policies, but then also a kind of a whole big industry as the aviation industry. Yeah, yeah. I believe that KLM, the, the Dutch airliner, is using biofuels, but they take an, an interesting source instead of cutting from, uh, from, from, from crops that you plan to make them. They use as their base um, old uh, uh, oil that has been used for frying food, which you would mm. normally throw away. And that sounds to me like a good solution because that is that is typical biofuel that you're not producing as a biofuel, but you have that waste anyway, and you turn it into into energy. Yeah, I think because how we solve the transport problem, it is a complex issue and it's not necessarily one solution only. I think the main thing where we should be heading is to electrification, but uh, we're not there yet that it's uh, for kind of trans-ocean shipping or for long-haul flights uh, in aviation. They're not there yet, technically speaking, uh, that it's possible to electrify this. And biofuels, with a limited uh, though resources that can be used as feedstock, but biofuels can be a positive solution. I think the key thing here is that you use things, proper kind of waste and residues that has no or very limited alternative use. You can make biofuels out of them. It can be kind of agricultural waste, uh, sawdust, etc. There are some used cooking oil as well. It it has some kind of problems attached to use of used cooking oil, but that's more about volumes than the principle. Uh, but the key thing is that there are feedstocks available. There are limited uh, amount of feedstock, but for some uses, you can, at least in a transition period, produce biofuels, and that will have a positive effect on the climate. So the key thing here is to look into what are the feedstock that are being promoted by governments and to make sure that we do not have policies that promote the feedstock that have a clearly negative effect uh, on the environment. Yeah, yeah. How how does a lobby like this work? So you are uh, you 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 know about it. You are uh, you 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 studied this. You have a team of people. You work in different countries, but you want to change policy. How does that work? I mean, okay, you you join in podcast. You make people aware. Very <laughs> very very good that you're doing that. But do you go? Are you do you organize seminars? Do we go to to Brussels and talk to policymakers? Uh, do you write articles? How how does how does an NGO work? Mm. I think uh, that's a very good question, and we can speak uh, a, lo a long time about that. But it's it's about raising awareness in the public about the problem, making sure. Uh, that people do not sit with the perception that biofuel is all good. Uh, and pointing out that especially for some feedstock, they have very negative effects and we need to make that now. So campaign work, um, 
kind of producing reports, producing documentation uh, on how these feedstock are destroying nature, are contributing to increased greenhouse gas emissions, etc. That's a prerequisite, and I think that's a prerequisite to get the interest of the decision makers as well. And then it's about convincing uh, the decision makers that often want to do good, uh, that their the policies that they have decided on actually do the opposite. Uh, there are various interests among decision makers and some kind of, you may have agricultural industries in your own country uh, that you want to promote, that you're dependent on, and they provide feedstock for biofuel. So of course you have those kind of links between economic interests and decision makers. But here as well, it's about um, getting as much understanding as possible uh, among decision makers that this is problematic. One thing that we in the Rainforest Foundation Norway have found effective as well is to bring affected people from the south, from countries like Brazil and Indonesia to decision makers uh, because so much of the policy making is made in corridors in Brussels or in national kind of parliament buildings, etc. And these people, uh, the decision makers, they are not necessarily exposed uh, to how reality looks like from kind of different sides, different parts of the world. So we earlier this month, we brought three Brazilian uh, indigenous peoples and civil society representatives to Brussels to meet with decision makers, to take part in that kind of street uh, action thing, to get awareness of the problematic part of the EU biofuel policies. And we see that it has some traction. So, uh, Actually, just a few days after this visit, I think it's a result of a long-term work that Rainforest Foundation Norway has done together with our partner and allies, transport and environment, and a lot of national-based organizations in Europe. We've been working over years uh, to change EU biofuel policies. And last week, we had a very first early step where one of the committees, the Environment Committee in the European Parliament, voted that they are in favor of a phase-out of all biofuels made of palm oil and soy by mid-next year. If that goes through the EU Parliament and the whole EU decision-making process, that will be a major victory. And I think that's yeah. a result of a long-term commitment from us as NGOs working kind of uh, consistently, impatient, but at the same time, it takes many years. <laughs> but gradually, we see that it's actually giving results. So yeah. I remain optimistic, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I've I've been, I don't know if you know, but I've, I've been a diplomat for nearly 25 years. So, so I work, let's say, on the other side. I was in those corridors that you described. And I always relied a lot on... NGOs, because simply when you when you are a policymaker, you often don't have enough time to really dive into the details. So you often work with the information that is presented to you instead of doing your own research, because simply you're you either don't have the knowledge or you're you're not equipped for it. So you 
unity and joes i've i've seen what a what an important role they play in 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 raising awareness for issues and come up with uh, with alternatives and and speaking of alternatives um so yeah clear uh, the the story is clear uh, don't don't use biofuels because for for the the, the three reasons uh, you uh, you already mentioned um but what is the alternative we still need transport and i think transport especially long distance flying is is a particular particular hard one to to solve without fossil fuels what what is what would you say on on, on what direction should we follow there i think shorter distance flying uh, and Norway, where you are, is a very interesting country. If, if I'm not mistaken, I think Norway decided a couple of years ago that by 2030, all domestic flights uh, should be non-fossil fuel flights, which I think is unique in the world. Um, where so so yeah, so where are you on 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 flying and fossil fuels? Mm. I think, yeah, Norway has a ambition that by 30, 2030, uh, all domestic flights shall be not only non-fossil, they shall be uh, electric. Uh, yeah. And Norway, in a way, is a perfect demonstration country because it's it's not that many people, so we don't need that big planes. And despite it, it's a long country, many of the flights will be uh, fairly short compared with uh, what should we say transatlantic uh, flights so it's a it's a good demonstration country for looking at this i think the key thing is to do i mentioned electrification and especially for road transport that's really an area where you can come far one thing that people often do not know is that uh, electric transport is much more energy efficient than uh, transport based uh, on fossil fuels because the engines are more effective. So you actually reduce energy consumption uh, by changing, swapping from fossil fuels to electric transport. And then for the, the problematic or the difficult part, uh, as you mentioned, is uh, long haul flights, uh, some other kind of really big shipping it's not easy to electrify that in a kind of very short term they're working on it and they're working on alternative fuels as methanol uh, as well so so you you have various hydrogen uh, is another alternative so you have various options there but as we also spoke about biofuels based on the truly waste and residue feedstock I think should be in a way be reserved uh, to the transport where it's harder to use other alternative uh, energy um, like electric transport. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can I can remember uh, talking to um, uh, to Jim Hansen, who was who was the guy who in the I think 1986 or something. He gave that speech in uh, in in the U.S. Senate where he warned the most powerful country in the world in their democracy. He said, "You know, this is really going wrong with climate change, and we should take action." And then this Jim Hansen speech, or James Hansen, 
is um, uh, it, it has by some people been suggested as that should be the marker of when to start the Anthropocene, when the most important and powerful country in the world, when their democracy was warned by a scientist who turned out later to be absolutely right in all the details he gave uh, that climate change go wrong, that that is the starting point of the Anthropocene, which is a completely different debate. You can mention all kinds of other starting dates. But I, I remember talking to him a couple of years ago when I was at Yale, and he, he, he was there too, and we, we had a long talk together. And he said that he had always used long-haul flights as the example why we should take early climate action because we don't have, for that particular problem, um, a clear solution yet. So therefore, you should take all the um, all the other, let's say, low-hanging fruit of all the other things where you could, let's say, on, on, on uh, land transport and other things where you can change things just because you, you, you need... You need some fossil fuels in the end. Then you don't have to go 100% fossil fuel free, but you can go 95% fossil fuel free, and then you have 5% for those things that you can't solve. And um, so that is also, I think, the, the, the focus on, on long-haul flights comes from both the environmental movement as well as from the people on the other side of the spectrum uh, to convince people like, you know, this is undoable. We shouldn't do anything. But there's, of course, a lot of gain uh, to be found uh, in um, in all kinds of other places. So uh, we we spoke a, a lot about uh, biofuels, etc. Um, what? But when we talk about rainforest, I mean, yeah, biofuels is just part of the problem. Um, but there's we we already mentioned palm oil. Palm oil is probably. Here it is just, what is it, 10.30 in the morning. I've probably already used like five or, or seven palm oil uh, products this morning. It is it is everywhere. So the deforestation for meat, especially, I guess, and for also for palm oil is going much further. So are you active on, on those fields as well? Yeah, we're working on what is a commodity-driven deforestation in general. And... What we see is that it's agriculture is the big driver of deforestation globally. Uh, and the main commodities driving deforestation is the cattle industry, especially in South America. It's the soy industry, uh, also in particular in South America. And it has been palm oil production, especially in Southeast Asia. Uh, of course, in addition to that, you will have mining, you will have uh, kind of industrial scale logging that will maybe more have a forest degradation effect uh, and not necessarily, at least not immediately, a deforestation effect. You will have paper production with pulp uh, or timber plantations that are expanding into forest areas. But especially agriculture uh, is the big driver and it's based on global demand for the commodities that are produced because most of this deforestation is to serve a global market. It's not for domestic use. Uh, and we in consuming markets, uh, whether that's in Norway or Canada or India or China or wherever, we have a responsibility uh, to make sure that our uh, uh, demand and our consumption do not lead to deforestation and environmental destruction elsewhere in the world. So we are working 
with private sector companies to make sure that they require that their suppliers should not be involved in deforestation at all. We're working with decision makers like uh, the European Union to make sure that they put in place legislation, and that's a, a pro an ongoing process and an ongoing debate, where it has been a proposal from the European Commission to ban products coming from deforestation, uh, to ban them from entering uh, the European market. You have similar initiatives in the UK, you have some discussion in the US and also China. Actually, you have seen some early signs that they want to reduce deforestation embedded in the product, uh, products that they consume. So there's a movement here. Um, and I think the combination of consumers that are aware of the problem, that are demanding things from uh, whoever they buy their companies from, but matched with an interest from decision makers, from investors, uh, the financial sector that invest in these com uh, companies uh, driving deforestation. So th there are many stakeholders that we need to move. Uh, and more and more um, actors see that they have a responsibility to do something. And we're working to figure out exactly what that something should be and to make uh, we're not there yet but that's also an area where we luckily have seen some positive movement the last few years yeah and it's uh, the kind of products you talk about can be let's say the most logical one you recognize is if you buy wood cut down from a tropical forest there's a kind of one-on-one -on -one relationship there was a tree it was cut down and now it is you know it's, it's your windowsill in your new house um but once it is cut down, it is used for growing soy often. Uh, mm. And then there's a kind of third level that the soy is used to feed livestock. And that is probably the main thing to focus on is, is eating of meat. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, meat consumption is a major culprit. Uh, and that applies to... Uh, meat produced also in Europe, for example, because uh, a lot of the f animal feed is uh, soy from tropical, uh, from South America, often leading to deforestation. At least you can be, unfortunately, more or less 100% sure that the company that has traded this soy they're complicit in deforestation and trading uh, deforestation soy. So you may have certification of products. The problem is that so far, almost all companies involved in the soy trade do also trade with deforestation soy. They may sell you a certified product, uh, but as long as they continue selling deforestation soy to other parts of the world and consumers that are not as aware as you are, continue, they will continue to be a part of that problem and they need to change their company behavior. Uh, and I think strengthen legislation uh, is an important part of that. You uh, asking if you go to a store and buy meat, uh, or asking the staff in the store will not necessarily be the key thing, but asking the company that are producing and selling this meat, 
do you have a no deforestation policy in place, for example? Do you require that all your suppliers have to be completely deforestation free? Uh, that's one of the things that you as a consumer could do, uh, because you're completely right that so many of the products that you see in the shelves in a supermarket have links to deforestation, and it's hard for you as a consumer to know it. Um, but continue kind of uh, asking questions to the producers uh, is a key thing, in addition to asking that this the, the lawmakers in your country uh, to put in place the needed legislation will be important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recognize that as a consumer, I don't eat meat. I, I don't eat eat any uh, animal products nor fish either. But I do eat soy. Um, <laughs> you need to eat something, which I don't feel too guilty about because the the amount of soy produced for Human consumption is a fraction. It's, it basically goes to uh, to animals, and yeah, still I need to eat something. Otherwise, you guys can't hear my podcast. So uh, uh, oh, that will be uh, <laughs> So that is that is something to work on. But I think in general, the information uh, that you get as a consumer on the products that you're eating is is far insufficient. I often have so many questions. When I'm in a supermarket and I buy my stuff, like where does it come from? And I recently mentioned the example of a kiwi. If you buy a kiwi in a supermarket, how did the kiwi, I suppose it comes from New Zealand, how did the kiwi end up on the other end of the world? Are they flown there? I I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, I have those questions and I don't know as a consumer how to how to get that information. I think there's so much to be gained in that field. Yeah, it didn't. The information for consumers is important, but I still think that the key thing individuals can do is to require that this is actually an area, it's so serious that we need to put in place binding policies and legislation. So I think raising your voice uh, towards the decision maker saying that this is such a serious problem that it needs to be addressed through legislation. Uh, is important. So leaving this to the consumers only, uh, you can achieve something, but you won't solve the problem. Uh, so it's in addition to being concerned when you're in the supermarket, you should also make sure that your voice is heard and that you require the needed action <laughs> from your government, actually. Yeah, which means voting for the right party. Uh, so your 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 voice as a voter is is important in this field, and I I often regret that by the time that elections come, so much attention goes to all kinds of other things in the media instead of to the big long term questions. It often focuses on 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 the small kind of news. I'm looking at yeah, uh, voting, at, but not, not yeah. only voting in a way because. Um, NGOs have their sign-on statements trying to raise awareness in social media, so sharing uh, information that, in a way, to attract more attention to these problems uh, is something that you can contribute with, not only every fourth or fifth year when you vote, uh, but every now and then, actually. Yeah, 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 and it is... Well, ultimately, I think the the big problems in the world should, at least in the democracies that we have, should be raised by 
more awareness and therefore uh, that should influence your voting. And that's typically where NGOs come in. It's the kind of raising awareness for for these kind of problems, especially when they are not not so completely obvious to see. When, when let's say, you have uh, somewhere local in your community, a forest is cut because they build a factory, people normally start to protest because they like that forest. But when it's further away and when it's more indirect, people are less aware and they don't they, they they don't see it so much and that's uh, that's why I admire the work of NGOs. I've worked a lot with NGOs in the past, so I I, I really admire what you are doing. I'm looking at um, uh, at the time, and we said we would not make this longer than 45 minutes. We're getting close there, but I'm also looking at if there's any questions in the chat or if people want to ask a question. This is called call in for a reason because you can call in by just raising your hand and calling on the on the call in button if you if you have a question uh, and if you don't like uh, to uh, to be in the show directly you can always um, add uh, questions uh, to the uh, to the chat uh, I don't see them at the moment but uh, just that you that you know that uh, we have that option um, if if I want to to we we got last we got a few more minutes left, um, but we're moving towards the end. If if I ask you, what is the single best thing, or you make also make a, a top three, if you like, um, that listeners can do to 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 change to change their lives and to do more for you know for the for the rainforest and for nature, um, because you often get this question like. Yeah, this is this problem is so big of climate change and nature loss and 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 habitat loss and the, and the pollution of the oceans and the plastic and whatever. Um, where where can I start? What what would you what would you advise um, listeners to do? Mm -hmm. I would. Uh, I, I think I will limit this to kind of what can you do for rainforests in general but of course it, it, it applies to many of the other environmental problems as well i think if you live in a democracy you have uh, people coming from your area that are voted in from your area ask them what have you done uh, to make sure that uh, consumption either if it's for food or for biofuels or whatever uh, in our country do not contribute to deforestation ask your uh, parliamentarian, uh, what have you done to protect this kind of incredibly important uh, ecosystem? Uh, because we know that we're complicit in destroying it. So you need to do something. Yeah. That's one thing. I would also ask uh, maybe a select a few of the big uh, producers of commodities that you buy, whether that's meat or biscuits or whatever, do you have in place a policy to avoid any suppliers that contribute to deforestation in your supply chain uh, that you can do? And I would say also generally reducing your consumption of meat is also generally a positive thing uh, because it's meat production requires a lot of resources not only soy, but not at least soy as feed. Uh, and 
the increasing demand for soy contributes to drive deforestation uh, in tropical forests, uh, and we need to reduce that demand, basically. Yeah. That yeah, was three, are, wasn't it? These are some, some really good points, and uh, the animals will appreciate uh, people as well that stop eating meat, I'm sure. So uh, that's uh, that's another good argument. And it's good for your health as well, not eating meat, or at least eating much less meat. Especially yeah, I, I meat, said so. eat less. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So from from that perspective, it is. Uh, personally speaking, I'm not some kind of fanatic that says that nobody in the world should eat meat. But if we would all eat a bit less meat, I was just the past couple of days in the United States, and on my way from Ottawa driving to New York, because I don't fly like most other people do on that distance, I, I'm still driving it. Um, I, I stopped in, uh, there was no other choice. I stopped in a fast food uh, chain restaurant. And there's not not even one single vegetarian product there. It is every single hamburger they sell is is, is a real meat, which is coming, having lived in Scandinavia and uh, having lived a lot in, in Northwestern Europe, that is unthinkable nowadays in Europe. But here it was just... Uh, they didn't even sell salad. <laughs> that was, I ended up with a piece of apple pie, which was full of sugar, which wasn't very healthy either, I guess. Okay, with, with that, uh, we are now at, at the 45 minutes I, I promised we would, uh, we would stick to. Um, I would like to thank you very much. Um, if people want to follow your work, uh, is the best way to go to, to, go to Twitter? Is that uh, where, where can they follow where you are active? Or go to your website? Yeah, uh, I, you should do both, of course. Uh, our Twitter account, where we have one in uh, English and one in Norwegian, for those who speak that uh, other language. Uh, our website, the entry page will be in Norwegian. But if you don't have to look that carefully to see the English website uh, as well. Uh, and Oh, that's... A, Fourth thing you can do, ask your journalists, uh, what have you written about rainforest things? Because hopefully we will also pop up uh, in media every now and then uh, yeah. when we have important messages that we want the public and the decision makers to know about. That's that's a good one. That's the number four on, on your list. So everybody just uh, Google Rainforest Foundation Norway um, and uh, and and follow them on uh, on your social media and uh, get uh, journalists and podcasters active to uh, ask attention for all the policies uh, that uh, that we spoke about. So yeah, with that, um, uh, I, I would like to uh, to thank you very much uh, for for joining us, uh, Niels Herman Ranum um, from Rainforest Foundation Norway. Uh, I think this was very interesting. We all learned a lot. And uh, and thank you so much for your time. Stay on the Zoom call, but uh, I'm going to close the uh, the podcast here. And thank you, listeners, uh, for joining tomorrow uh, at normal time, which is uh, three o'clock Eastern time. Uh, we'll be back in this podcast with uh, Alistair Doyle, uh, whom uh, many of the regular listeners know as uh, the first environmental correspondent from Reuters. Uh, also living in Norway, by the way, uh, we have a kind of Norwegian bias in, in this uh, this podcast. Um, 
I honestly have no idea what we will be talking about tomorrow, but we always find all kinds of interesting subjects to talk about when uh, when Alastair is joining us. Uh, so that will be fun tomorrow, normal time, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, please join us, and I wish you all a, a really wonderful day. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye.